And hey, everyone. Uh, today, I have the absolutely fantastic pleasure of speaking with the one, the only, Glenn Austin, the CFO of DCG or Dash Core Group. How's it going, Glenn? Excellent. How are you doing, Joel? I'm doing fantastic. How about you? Great, thanks. Let's just keep on saying, how are you doing, how are you doing, until it's just an <laughs> infinite loop. Um, but how's up? You're out in Phoenix right now, correct? That's right. 110 degrees out right now, so not not enjoying the weather at all. Yeah. Um, but here next week, it'll be nice and cool in the, in the high 90s. Yes, it was in the high 90s with a lot of humidity here in New Hampshire for a while, and Got then it. which is bad. But then this week, it's been like high of like 68, 69 or so, and then low in like 50. It's been, which is what I, I like a lot. So you can suffer as much as you want out there. I think, you know, I wonder if suffering produces good code or something, if that's the way these things work. <laughs> yeah. Way to make me feel jealous. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Yeah. But um, yeah, so thanks for coming on. We're, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. And I think that kind of your segment of the whole operation is one that's, um, I would say, often overlooked or ignored or something like that. But it's one of the very much, very important bits because if the numbers don't add up, uh, the lights don't stay on, and isn't Dash all about being money? And so you think the finance, honey, yeah, it would work, but everyone just wants to talk about the code and the apps and the stuff. And then to a lesser extent now they're about the economics where people are like, you know, how does it, how does this work out? What are the economic incentives and stuff? But then in reality, the more, um, the better, <laughs> the financial side is pretty important. So yeah. first, uh, what have you been up to lately? Just, just in general. Like so, I've been doing you know the CFO role. So as you said, kind of dealing with submitting proposals to the network, figuring out our budgets, figuring out you know how much we need to request from the network in order to fund our operations, and then aside from that, I've kind of gotten involved in the legal and regulatory side too. Mm. So you know we were delisted in Japan, as you heard. Um, so I've been fighting that decision. I think we're going to make some progress there. Um, in 2021, we're looking at um, how private send is perceived by various regulators. So, you know, we've been talking to some Korean exchanges, um, to exchanges in Australia, and just explaining how private send technology works and why we shouldn't be considered a privacy coin from a regulatory standpoint. So that's been pretty exciting as well. And then, you know, I've also been doing some of the less glamorous HR type work, you know, doing some of the redoing contracts um, on a six month or one year basis for all the subcontractors and just, you know, tracking hours and all of that as well. So I kind of wear three hats at Dashcorp. <laughs> Plenty of hats. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there was a few questions that we had that were, but before we jump into those, I think that because it's more topical, um, the regulatory thing I think is interesting. And yeah. recently I saw the, some, Australian exchanges delisted a lot of privacy coins. Um, as far as I could see from, you know, I did not go super into all the details of which ones, but most of them seemed to be only the encryption focused coins. But there was like one or two that had Dash on that list too. They just did like a blanket thing. And right. so um, do you, are, I'm sure you're more up on the situation than I am. So, What's been going on in Australia as far as that, that's concerned? 
So from what I initially saw was that a number of Australian exchanges delisted Dash. Um, and for me, that was a big warning signal. We wouldn't want to, you know, just be delisted, obviously, from all of Australian exchanges. Mm -hmm. Similar to Japan, again, re-entering that market will cost a lot. So it's better to just prevent the delistings in the first place. Um, a, a day or two after those were announced, we saw that a number of those exchanges that were going to delist us then partnered with Chainalysis. And Chainalysis, you know, began, began coverage of Dash, I would say, I think in April or May. I think it was May of this year. And they basically said that um, the term of privacy coin for Dash is a misnomer because mm -hmm. private send is essentially coin join. And that exists on any transparent blockchain. So since we don't have, you know, hidden addresses or hidden amounts, um, we shouldn't be considered a privacy coin. You know, privacy is kind of like a spectrum. Um, coin join is one technique you can apply on that spectrum, but it's not like, you know, we're actually shielding addresses or anything like that. So going back to the Australian exchanges, they partnered with Chainalysis. Chainalysis has been great in explaining to exchanges how you can, tr you know, put in the same AML slash compliance um, type um, techniques that you can for Bitcoin or for Litecoin or for any other um, transparent blockchain. And basically, they're not going to delist Dash. I think there's still a couple of exchanges in Australia. I think Binance Australia might have not, um, might still be delisting us as of now, but we've reached out to them as well and we're trying to engage them in dialogue too. Yeah, so it seems like from what you're saying there that um, it's always an education issue. They hear privacy coin and they're like, right. this is it, we can't do this. And that seems to be most of it. And what changes their mind is some kind of authority saying the opposite. Now, it could be a governmental authority, but the government's never going to say, no, 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 you do want to use this coin. Like, they're, they're not going to do that. So sometimes when you educate regulators and exchanges enough, it kind of stops the bleeding maybe. But it's like it seems like this is the first example of an active realisting kind of process where they talk to – they talk, they – increase their regula regulatory compliance measures, and then they relist Dash as a result, which is right. like a fantastic thing. And so chain analysis and um, what were some of the other uh, compliance kind of companies that Dash is enabled by, so, supported by, partnered with, or whatever? Um, blockchain Intel. Mm -hmm. So we've partnered with them as well. Um, and then there's CoinFirm. They also cover Dash. So between those three, I think the fourth one there is Elliptic. I'm not sure if they cover us or not. But those are kind of the four big players in the space. Um, yeah. We've also been able to do the same thing in Korea, South Korea, that is, obviously. So, you know, South Korea was kind of the first um, area where the regulators were cracking down. We proactively engaged the exchanges and the regulators, educated them. And then they were like, okay, great. You're not a privacy coin. You know, so let's keep you listed. And we're taking that approach in Australia as well. Um, in the U.S., we've proactively also actually approached regulators to say, hey, you know, there have been concerns about us being a privacy coin. Um, and I think that really stems from just not understanding how the technology works. It's literally someone sitting down and Googling what are the privacy coins out there and Dash, you know from its beginnings from 2015, 2016 was labeled as a privacy coin. And that reputation just carries on. Um, 
I like to think of it as, you know, you can enable or disable privacy features on your blockchain, right? Um, so you can easily move down the spectrum of becoming more private or less private, depending on, you know, what you have enabled on your specific platform. So it's not like one coin is a privacy coin and then you, it's set in stone. What you want to do is you, I would periodically revisit that assumption every year or every two years and say, hey, does it still have the characteristics of being more private than some benchmark or less private, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, and so um, these three to four major compliance firms for cryptocurrency, how wide is their reach? I would assume that everywhere in the U.S., any major exchange is probably affected by those. But what about Western Europe? What about Australia? What about Asia? And then what about just outside of there? Like how, how common, like it would be great to be, oh, coin firm is great, but then no one in Australia uses or cares, and therefore now you have to just kind of fight from zero. I think most exchanges at this point have partnered with one of these. Mm. Um, and, you know, yeah, they, they collaborate and work together. And it really does help them address any type of concerns, um, any type of regulators or governmental bodies might have. Yeah, so what's the outlook for Australia then? It seems like, again, Dash was not one of the more targeted ones, but did get targeted by a couple. Do you think that there's a good chance that Dash stays enabled in all those? I think there's a good chance. I think it's a matter of us continuing to reach out to both the exchanges and the regulators and engaging them in dialogue. Once we, um, Dash Core Group a year ago actually was able to do private send transactions on the Bitcoin network. Yeah, I remember So that. I can show you a Bitcoin block and I can show you a Dash block where private send is done. And you literally couldn't tell the difference between the two of them, except one would say BTC and the other one would say Dash. And, and the BTC inputs, one would cost five times yeah. as much, but it's right, exactly, else. Right. But yeah, you literally have 20 inputs, 20 outputs, and you can't match one address to the other um, directly within that block right there, right? So it's literally the same thing. Um, now, we happen to make it with Dash, it's easier, it's faster. But from a regulatory standpoint, that, that shouldn't change the fact that, you know, it's an implementation of CoinJoin. Yeah. So do you, has there been an issue with regulators as far as the fact that the masternodes are implementing CoinJoin rather than just some other third party? They don't really care? I, I think what they cared about was um, they really wanted to know, do masternodes ever take custody of the funds? And they don't, right? It always stays with the user. You send the funds from one address in your wallet to another address within your same wallet. Mm -hmm. So as long as the masternodes never um, take custody of the funds, that's what they really cared about. A lot of these third-party mixing services will take custody, and there you can run into a number of issues. Yeah, for sure. So once we sit down with the regulators and kind of explain how it works, they're like, oh, wow, we had no, sometimes they'll say we obviously knew, or sometimes they'll say, hey, we had no idea. This is great. This definitely lowers what, what we perceived your risk profile to be. Yeah. So is it then just a game of hitting up every regulator on the planet and hitting every main compliance 
uh, company on the planet. So was it Elliptic or whatever the name of the other one was? It'd be about making sure that they support Dash and then just every major regulator, whenever they start trying to delist stuff, you beat down their door and get a meeting with them. And that kind of solves the problem. Yeah, I mean, that's what we've been doing. Unfortunately, we've been more reactive than proactive in this area. Mm -hmm. um, again, we have been re proactive in terms of going after the markets we really are in, like in the U.S. Um, and South Korea. But, you know, our business development team is a team of two. They have a lot of things on their plate already. You know, I obviously have to handle the finances and all that. So we can't, you know, approach, let's say, Singapore and say, hey, guys, let, let's educate on you on this until we kind of hear that there might be some type of issue coming up. And at that point, we deploy, right? So it has been reactive, but that's been mostly because of just resources. If I could just reach out proactively to every single regulator out there, I would love to do that, right? Yeah. Now, how did Korea end up shaking out? Because I remember there was a ton, there was a wave of delistings for all kinds of coins in Korea. There was a few that I remember covering that got re that relisted dash or pause thingies whatever and that's kind of the last i sort of heard because headlines you know and you have to follow up these, these stories otherwise you know the headlines just go away when it's like oh you know minor crisis in china you know, could right. d5 be the next big thing and then it just moves on so right. what is the status of dash in korea and korean exchanges now so most most of those exchanges ended up not delisting dash so we will go to reverse it i think one of them might have we had pretty low liquidity on it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think they did it um, for less regulatory reasons and maybe more, you know, business reasons, so to mm -hmm. speak. But, you know, we're, we're always happy to re-engage them and explain to them, hey, you know, th this is why you shouldn't have delisted us or this is why you should relist us at this point. Yeah. What meaningful progress has been made with Japan? Japan. So... We have, so there was a separate um, proposal put forth yeah, by Yosuke, which is Dash Japan, and he's been working with us. So, um, you know, he's been contacting regulators. He finally was able to um, engage a law firm mm -hmm. um, to actually write a opinion on private send and on Dash in general. And he's also now engaging an accounting firm. Um, when I was in Japan, um, this time last year, we sat down with the JVCEA, which is the Japan Virtual Currency um, Association, and um, they basically said, we need a statement from a big four or an accounting firm stating that um, your blockchain is automatable. Um, so our blockchain is no different from um, Bitcoin's from a yeah. technology perspective. So that, that should be pretty simple, but th they really want that you know statement by a um, accounting firm for mm -hmm. reputational issues or whatever. So kind of he's pursuing those two memos. Once he does that, we need to partner with um, a reputable um, Japanese exchange and then talk um, with them about a real, a relisting basically on, on that exchange. Yeah. I mean, that seems very achievable. And I remember yeah. Japan is the toughest nut to crack and just seems to be whenever you talk about D-list privacy coin, Japan's like number one on the list. Yeah. And so it seems like, do you have any hope that if Japan opens its doors to Dash, that that's going to have a domino effect in other areas where like Australia is like, ah, we're not nowhere near as tough as those guys. And then they, or is it still going to have to be like a per country kind of a basis? 
Um, I think we're listed in most countries. So mm -hmm. Japan is just going to take a while, but I think we will get there. Um, it's just, it's about education, right? And mm -hmm. it's about, you know, making sure you sit down with the right regulators and the right exchanges and they understand your story. And then um, they actually also want to list your coin for business reasons as well, yeah, right? So that, that's the big you know, one. That's the big one, right? So um, I, I'm optimistic about it. I just think it won't be within the next three months. Mm -hmm. um, the time horizon there is a bit longer. Um, I think it'll take place in 2021. All right. Well, that's that's reasonable. Yeah. Now, we're t the last kind of thing I add on the privacy issue. Um, so when we're talking about privacy, obviously, one of the hallmarks of crypto is pseudonymity, which offers a, a level of privacy. And of course, that's trying to be digital cash, you know, was trying for a little bit more of that angle. But there's a lot of different coins out there from the Zcashes and Z coins of the world to the Moneros of the world that have advanced kind of things. And across the board, is there just, is privacy just seen as like a, a non-starter, like this should never be fully private? Or is there some sort of nuance? Like I remember you said about the um, Japanese authorities looking for auditability, a statement of auditability. It's not necessarily can you deduce a transaction, can you find out who sent what, it, but it's more can you audit the chain to detect criminal activity kind of thing. So is is there an is that just kind of the nuance, or is it that a lot of exchanges just don't want to a lot of regulators just don't believe that privacy is a fundamental right. Um, I personally believe mm -hmm. privacy is a fundamental right, right? Yeah. I was born in the former Soviet Union, yeah. um, and there was no privacy there. Um, it, a lot of issues stem from that, right? Like mm -hmm. freedom is a fundamental right. So I'm, I'm a strong proponent of um, privacy. Um, you know, be it from your, let's say you send a transaction to your neighbor. You wouldn't mm -hmm. want your neighbor to know how much crypto you have. Let's say you wouldn't want your boss to know if you donated funds to a political party, right? Um, a, a particular one. You Let's say you want to make an anonymous contribution. Like there's a reason, um, you know, there's a reason bank account statements aren't widely circulated, right? That That's, that's also a privacy issue. Um, so for me, it's, it's a fundamental right. I think in our society, like in the U.S., mm -hmm. regulators recognize that. For them, the tension lies in, do I still have the tools to capture the bad actors, right? Mm -hmm. the, the people who are doing the wrong thing. Um, do I have the tools in order to combat that? Or is it, or, or can I do nothing about that? And that, that's, that tension between people's personal freedoms and figuring out how to catch the bad guys is what's going to be the theme, I think, going forward. Um, yeah. And it, it'll always be kind of like a cat and mouse game, right? You know, of course. There are more advanced techniques, then regulations try to catch up. And, you know, just, I think it'll just continue to evolve. Um, that's a space that'll be really interesting um, to see how it evolves and what it looks like in 10, 15 years, because it could, you know, become quite dystopian. <laughs> yeah. To a certain degree as well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by this topic in general. And, yeah would love to see how it evolves well let me just give a real world world example from my own life 
Um, I had a friend who, when I was living in Phoenix, was my roommate for a while, best friend, and he moved back to Mexico, and he got basically, very long story, but he got basically framed for something he didn't do in the eyes of the cartels, and they were chasing after him, trying to kill him, and he was moving from state to state in Mexico trying to escape, and then basically when he's ready to just give up and stop running, I managed to get him to escape to Canada and I paid for his plane ticket with crypto. And I'm sure you've seen enough things in the news with credit card hacks and data leaks and stuff that you could just like buy credit card things. And it's like, you could probably find data or hack and just say, well, who paid for this guy's plane ticket? Let's go after him. But because it wasn't, you know, then my safety's secure for now. You know, this right. guy managed to escape and he's, he's still alive to this day. So, Mm-hmm. privacy to a certain extent and crypto saved his life and this is in the, the very pre pre mainstream crypto days so that's one reason i really think it's like you know a fundamental like a fundamental right to have some sort of privacy uh, especially when you start seeing the kinds of things that people do with when they find out your your data yeah absolutely agreed yeah so um it's kind of um how much of a regulatory problem is regular or or pain in pain in the butt let's just say do that you know of is regular daily like private send use so say i just get the brand spanking new dash electrum wallet which lets you mix on mobile and i'm just mixing all the time because i just love the tech and i just love the idea of like financial privacy even though i have nothing to hide of a very normal thing and i'm going out there my little coffee shop buying coffee i'm buying this i'm buying that is that going to be a pain in the butt for like if some restaurants like hey like every third like every third time this guy buys beer for you get like a beer sale in dash it's like they can't tell where it's from and like is that kind of because i you know i use private send to like buy it there or like this coffee like you know like a, a whole tenth of a percent of your coffee sales come from this like can't find out where the money comes from like, is that going to be an accounting nightmare or problem for people for small purchases? And if so, if not, what's kind of the area at which it starts to become more of a pain in the butt where it then when they try to cash out to the exchange, the exchange is like, whoa, 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 wait, we don't know where this comes from. We need to know more. Yeah, I honestly don't know the answer to that question, right? So mm-hmm. how how the exchanges work um, and you know, what it would mean if you sent private sent funds to directly to an exchange, at what point that would trigger a question or an inquiry or something like that. I actually have no transparency to that. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting. But that is, that's an interesting question though. Yeah. Now the last thing on the privacy thing, cause of course this is just like a snowball of questions when you come to this, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. this is the last one is when you talk about the encrypted privacy coins, whether it's you know Zcash with the ZK Snarks or Zcoin with their Lolantis upgrade, which is, has some very interesting stuff about burning coins and freshly minting them at the destination and having like a, a, a no traceable, um, no correlation between the amount that you put in the burn state and that you get out. Like some very interesting kind of ideas. And then of course Monero where everything is, you know, protected by bulletproofs everything bulletproof so to speak and you need like special view keys and stuff to be able to see where a transaction came from um is it are they just like dead in the water as far as 
regulation because like I know Zcash is um, is supported by Gemini, which is one of the more you know bit licensed exchanges out there, and I I've, that because it's most of Zcash is transparent. That might be kind of why they feel comfortable with that. They might not buy shielded transactions. That's kind of like my question is what are the regulatory prospects for, you know, pretty much universal inclusion for some of these encrypted coins? Is it just like not going to happen because you can't audit the whole blockchain? Is it only going to happen under certain circumstances for very specific to the transaction? Like what, what do you think? So it's interesting when Chainalysis, for example, um, covered Dash, they also covered Zcash. Mm-hmm. So um, they covered, you know, Dash and Zcash, you know, at the same time, they announced coverage of the two coins. With Dash, they actually went out and stated that it's a misnomer to call Dash a privacy coin. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been using that as ammunition in our discussions with the regulators. With Zcash, they're specifically um, covering the, the transparent portion of the blockchain. I think Zcash right now, um, most of the transactions or, you know, 90 or 99%, I don't remember the exact mm-hmm. number, are on kind of the, the transparent chain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's how they've been pivot, um, pivoting and explaining it to regulators. Um, it'll be interesting to see if people start using more of the privacy features going forward and what that will mean. Mm-hmm. Um, we've probably heard this a ton of times. Um, you, you know, people say that they really care about privacy, but when it comes down to it, they typically don't act like it um you are obviously a shining counter example of that right mm-hmm. of course <laughs> um but a lot of people generally s- state that they care about privacy much more than they actually do so, so that, that that's also um kind of interesting yeah it's a fashionable belief yes exactly yeah and so with something like monero for example which I guess it, I, I did what I would consider one of the right things. There's t- the right thing isn't there's isn't just one right thing, but one of the right things by just going all the way, leaning all the way into the privacy thing, because if you don't, you don't ever really know what the implications are. You don't really know how far it works if you don't just like live it. It's not like like the Zcash thing. It's easy to talk about how good it, it works, but if you don't actually use it, you don't actually know the, the problems with it. So. Something like Monero, would they ever be able to be listed on Coinbase? And I mean, obviously, that's a very specific question. Let me let me just rephrase that in a way that you won't get busted for trying to answer. But something like Monero, would they ever be listed in a? Are they likely to be listed on a common on a large regulated exchange? And if if not, is that just because of the fundamental way that you just cannot look at the blockchain and all the transactions? are invisible unless there are special circumstances that they don't want to do. Is that kind of I would really defer that to the exchanges, right? Yeah. Each exchange has their own policy for, you know, they have a checklist a lot of times as Mm -hmm. to what criteria and what requirements and what circumstances are around the coin, around its launch, around its price. So privacy is just one of many factors they'll look at. Um, I don't know which exchanges will specifically exclude Monero because of its privacy mm-hmm. um, features or some other feature that we may not know about, right? So I'm, I'm going to evade and avoid answering that question in that matter. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Well, so we had a bunch of, obviously, a bunch of questions regarding um, more, more specific to your very specific role, which, of course, this is more generally 
around your role, but um, about basically um, dealing with the purse strings of Dash Core Group and all that has to to offer. Now, of course, dealing in crypto at all, as you know, I have for many years, and as some businesses unfortunately have to do. It can be a little bit of a nightmare with the ups and downs of the prices and stuff, but it's even worse with the, the or it's even more extreme with the Dash Treasury because not only do you have to like win an election every month in order to get paid, well, like considering all the nonsense with the political elections in the U.S., can you imagine now just like election every month? Otherwise, you don't eat. It's like, ah, it's pretty terrible. But also like when the price goes down, it's not just... You got paid, and if you hold any, you have risk of that going down. It's the your ability to get paid goes down as well. So there's like the double risk and stuff. So um, this has been something that I'm sure has been answered before, but it, it helps to kind of have it out for you know all the new new viewers and stuff. Is up. What is Dash Core Group's break-even Dash price point to maintain present operations? So what price can Dash Core Group keep? At what price of Dash can Dash Core Group keep the uh, the lights on as the lights on that are on right now? Right, and yes, that you know I have answered that question, but that is a moving target, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were to ask me that when I first started um, here at Dash Core Group, what two and a half years ago, that number would have been around two hundred, right? Um, as of four months ago, it was probably closer to $65 per dash. Mm -hmm. So as of today, you know, our break-even price, assuming we continue um, requesting 60% of the network funds, which is mm -hmm. what we've been doing for the last um, year and a half, is roughly $77, right? So what does this pay for? It kind of pays for Dash Core Group salary. Um, you do have to note that, you know, we still have six volunteers that are contributing for free or at reduced rate. Um, and they are planning to continue to volunteer, but at any moment they can unvolunteer, right? It also pays for kind of our translation efforts, our infrastructure costs, um, some business development activity. Um, also covers kind of the day-to-day -day legal expenses, and then you know covers this office that I'm sitting in right now, um, which is you know at Skysong um, in Scottsdale, yeah. which um, is a fun office. I've been a few yeah. times. It's yeah, you have yeah. It's, it's a nice little here, place. What, yeah, earlier. What, in yeah. December, I think we met here. Yes. Um, now, what it doesn't fund are, you know, we're like at baseline levels in terms of marketing activity right now. Mm -hmm. And for business development, it assumes a pretty low monthly spend of around ten to $15,000 a month, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, it's sufficient to get things done. Um, we, of course, wish it was more than 10000 a month, right? So, you know, you, you always hope for more. Um, now, if we really had to slash our expenses and keep the lights on and not really significantly impact our operations, I think we can go down from that break-even price of $77 all the way down to $67, mm. you know, by asking volunteers to step up and tightening our belt, our belt so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it is an ideal, and it's definitely not a long-term solution, right? And then if you're looking at anything below $50 for Dash um, and for a prolonged time period, at that point, we're really, you know, draining our reserves. And, mm. you know, if the price remained that low at that point, after several months, we would have to start making changes to the organization. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of where we are. Thankfully, I would say, you know, we have been above that $77 threshold for the last few months. 
So we have been able to increase our reserves. And, you know, we're really close to getting to that three-month minimum compensation mm -hmm. expense reserve that I keep talking about in our quarterly calls. Yeah. Um, you know, we're it's probably I'm repeating that as often as I was repeating opening a bank account when I first joined Dashcore Group, which was also a major challenge, but that got done, you know. Yeah, but right now sure. we are sitting at 2.8 months of um, compensation expense reserve. And that's really the highest it's been since I joined Dashcore Group. Um, you know, so <laughs> that is huge achievement in my mind. Yeah. Yes. And of course, um, for many years, I worked for the Dow itself for the Dash Force Group. And I remember like we were, we did, did not have reserve plans out of a, a fundamental um, kind of a philosophical reason. It's not that like didn't plan for a rainy day. We're just like, we know that, you know, people are going to be attacking us. And so we want to make sure we're super, super like, just like only getting paid. That's it. And then yeah. if there happens to be extra money, then we just like, don't ask for money until we're back that we have no money kind of thing. Right. And of course, you know, there was quite a few months um, towards, you know, before we ended up dissolving the organization and, and Mark took part of it to a different uh, spot and I went independent with my spot is right. um, there's a few months of little or no pay for like the three partners while, you know, trying to keep the employees paid. And so like, yeah, right. no, I know how that kind of thing can work, but like on that subject, you mentioned the volunteers and this was not something I specifically asked. So if you don't have the math in front of you, I completely understand. But what is, what would the current operations break even point B? You said 77, but what would it be if the volunteers were compensated at regular rates? Do you kind of know what that would have been? Yeah. Let me just do a quick calculation. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll check some of the comments here in the meantime. Sure. It, it would be around eighty-five or eighty-six dollars. So day. very close to where we're at now, like v very close to where we're sitting right now. Yeah, and to be fair, out of those six volunteers, I know there's one volunteer who's basically going to be a volunteer indefinitely. So that person never wants to get paid, right? Um, yeah. And then and then there are others who you know are fine where they are right now and don't want to do it, don't want to get reinstated. You know, I know at least this year and maybe going into next year. And then there might be one or two um, that would be looking to, you know, get reinstated once we kind of met that three-month compensation um, minimum. So, you know, people's circumstances vary tremendously, right? Yeah. And now, of course, we were talking about prices and like what can you afford. A lot of that, um, no one really cares on a surface level what dcg like how much dashboard group spends or the budget like no no outside observer just cares on its own about that metric they care about what it means and the thing that's been great about the very bottom of the bear market and up has been the the development lights have kept on that the bait the core protocol has kept on being developed and maintained and dash platform has been surging ahead and as you almost out on full test net and yay that'll be awesome but so that's like the, the number one, like, I'm not like we're most uh, investors. So like, I'm not going to sell all my coins right now. Like, yes, this is good. This is great. It's moving on now. Uh, at the same time, I've spoken to quite a few different developers and stuff. And there's a lot of, yeah, that's a great idea, but we don't have enough people for that right now. Like we're focusing on just like what matters. And like, for example, um, overhauling the private send experience was one of those things that I've heard 
kind of mentioned. It's like, yeah, I'd love to do it, but it's, it's up to me and I'm busy <laughs> and we don't have other people. So basically, and of course, huge shout out to Andy Freer and his um, app program, his, his DAP development program, which I believe is, I don't know if it's the first in history, but it's one of the very few proposals that has passed with zero no votes. Which is just it, incredible. Yeah, he's doing a great job, and I'm helping out a couple of those devs there with like brainstorming because I can't code for anything. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm helping trying to figure out economics and incentives and UX yeah. because it's just so much cool stuff going on there. So sure. it doesn't mean there's not a lot of development and development money even. Mm -hmm. But as far as like core development things and, you know, all that. So basically, uh, what would be the point at price point at which that core group would feel comfortable and starting to hire extra developers for other things like that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I think what's important in kind of mentioning price levels is that it's not the price itself that matters. Mm -hmm. Obviously that matters, but it's also kind of the duration at which it stays at that level, right? Yeah. So for example, if Dash were to skyrocket right now to 300 and then stay there for three days and come back to 86, well, guess what? We didn't really get to capture the benefit of that price, right? We, yeah. we want to slowly sell the dash we get from the I would have bought a new couch if it did that really quick. Just like right <laughs> now, the other one's fading. Just get in there real quick while I can. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so kind of when you mention a price point, to me, it, I'm going to rephrase it as saying, you know, what sustained price level would you need above a certain level in order to attract? Yeah, that and by sustained, right? how many months yeah. would you consider to be sustained? And, and I would say two to three months in my mind right now is is pretty much sustained. You know, where you know, if the price didn't dip below a hundred um, too many times over the next two three months, I think at that point we would consider hiring extra developers. Um, there are some other needs. Um, mm -hmm. that Dash Core Group has prior to that. Um, I think it's important to kind of take care of the people we have here mm -hmm. um, and, you know, improve um, conditions and, you know, maybe do some type of cost of living adjustment as well, which hasn't happened. Yeah, buy um, an air conditioning unit. Uh, <laughs> right, buy the from, new couch. <laughs> upgrade from bread and water, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so there are some a couple windows, wanna... you know, <laughs> and just, you know, get rid of the, you know, get new prison pajamas. I don't know. Right. Get yeah. rid of the fax machine. Right. Yeah. So get rid of kind of, so, you know, just use the additional funds internally first, but I do think it's really important to hire extra developers. The other thing, um, I think that would be incredible to see is that, to see an expansion in the ecosystem as well, right? Mm -hmm. So those extra developers, I wouldn't even necessarily say they need to sit under the Dash Core Group umbrella. Uh, what I like about Dash in general is that there are so many other teams that can work independently and ask for funding. And, you know, I, when I look at the budget, there's been, you know, a significant amount of Dash that has gone unallocated in the last few months, right? So yeah. I think this most recent super block, there was roughly four to 500 dash that didn't get allocated that could have gone to, you know, support a team of developers. So, you know, when we talk about attracting extra developers, doesn't necessarily have to be under the dash core group umbrella. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, um, it's been, and it just could be a huge side tangent. So I'm just going to say it really quick. That is, it's one of those awesome and 
challenging bits about Dash is that there's no DCG is the only real main team to join. Everything else is like entrepreneurship. It's like, what do you want to do? It's like, all right, I want to be entrepreneurial. Make it happen. And you're just looking around at nothing. There's nothing around. You have to like come up with an idea, market test the idea. You have to like do just chisel your livelihood out of the rock. It doesn't exist. You got to create it. And that's why it's so fulfilling for a lot of people. And so that's the thing with like developers, like there's a lot of volunteer developers in the crypto world because it's, you know, an open source passion project for a lot of people. And then there's some bounty programs and then there's, but then people think that they can work for Dash and they just say, who's hiring? And it's like, well, you know, maybe DCG, maybe not. Other than that, here's Andy's program. If you're not a platform developer, like, what do you do? It's like, well, then you kind of have to build something from scratch. So it can get a little challenging to get with that. I do know that there's a few developers who have been ch chatting about um, improving, basically polishing Dash's privacy functions. And, right. you know, not, of course, you know, and before anyone gets freaking out about, no, no, we're about to get delisted everywhere now after all this work. No, just streamlining the things that are already there that are already kind of available in other uh, implementations, including like putting in some, working on some Dash improvement proposals or dips that would make certain things uh, possible. But it's hard to kind of get motion on that without like a leader, like an entrepreneur who just says, I think we should start working on this here. Let's put in some like like stuff. I'm going to go do a bounty program or I'm going to hire two, three devs. Just like the Dash Electrum team has been another independent of Dash Core Group development team that has That's been right. working, has been funded. And so there needs to be more of that, but you need to like start from somewhere, have an idea, start building it. And then, yeah. and then it's going to be awesome. Right. And I think that'll be important once platform rolls out, right? Mm -hmm. we'll want to attract developers to work on apps or to build on top of plat platform as well. So, yes. Yeah. And, um, if anyone's listening and wants to do stuff like that, um, I'm not a developer. I'm not going to develop, sorry, but, and I, and I can't manage developers either because again, I don't know what I'm looking for and stuff, but if someone wants some great ideas on things that need to be done as far as product, cause I'm sort of the consummate crypto user that has been using crypto and blockchain every day and last for the last seven years. Uh, I'd love to find a way, you know, doesn't need to be even paid, but just like someone who will say like, for example, Bitcoin Cash's flip starter that they have, which is kind of a, a, um, crowdfund system that if the goal isn't reached within a certain amount, it automatically refunds all the donations. So it's kind of like a treasury ish donation system that would be fantastic to port to dash that just like one example and that alongside the treasury would be fantastic because the treasury is what everyone can agree on but there's some stuff that like say you have that misses by a narrow vote and it's like oh man but those people who voted believe strongly enough they can then donate to that and make it get done another thing so to develop all those things that'd be great i'm full of ideas and that's kind of about it <laughs> you know i'm an opinionated jackass whatever it is but uh the next one, of course, is at what price point, again, sustained three months price point, which results in more money being available. Um, at what sustained price point would DCG feel comfortable in starting to like engage in some marketing campaigns? So not just, okay, keep, keep the lights on, make a video or two, but like now we're starting to commission like a series of videos and start to do paid advertisement and paid sponsorships on podcasts and stuff, which by the way, if you want to 
and advertise on this one. I don't know if it's a good ROI since I'm already talking about this stuff, but hey, you can do that. But at what price point would that be? Uh, would that be a thing? That's a that's a tough question because, as you know, marketing campaigns can literally cost anywhere between you know ten million, ten thousand dollars, or millions of dollars, right? So depending on what you're trying to do, um, there is a clear need to market Dash, and I think. With the release of Dash Platform, we really need to market the features of Platform and all of its benefits and get that across. Um, in my mind, what's going to happen is we're going to request Dash for this regardless of price, mm -hmm. right? So we're going to put forth a marketing proposal for a set amount of Dash and where the price is. Um, once the funds come in, that's what we'll be able to do depending on you know the budget available to us. Um, I hope it translates into a higher amount of U.S. dollars than a lower amount, right? Um, and if the price is in triple digits, I think um, we would be able to do something more than just keeping the lights on, obviously, right? To actually do a proper marketing campaign mm. um, with, that leads to you know something that's impactful. Um, I know right now, Fernando is literally... Um, Fernando, the chief marketing officer, is literally kind of in the last stages of putting together a specific plan around all this. And I know the plan itself is most likely based on scenario planning, meaning, you know, if the price is 200, this is what we recommend. If it's 150, this is what we recommend. If it's 100, this is what we can afford. So, you know, um, kind of putting in price triggers around what it is that we're going to end up rolling out. But there's a clear need that we'll need to roll something out concurrent with the yeah, for sure. Now, um, what was a hot the last time we saw each other in person? Of course, was during um, during the whole open the second open house. Of course, the first Dash Core Group open house was in early 2017. I was yeah. there as well. But then this one is late 2019 to okay. announce that Dash Platform was done and in on EvoNet. There's something yeah. that was out. Something existed. Something you could play around with. Yeah, and. Oddly, it was a very weird time because it was the bottom of the crypto market, so people were all grumpy for whatever, you know, for all the <laughs> associated reasons. Yes. Um, people were kind of like feeling, it was like the second to last day of the year when this was released, and the whole thing was if evolution or whatever is considered some kind of evolution thing is not out at the end of the year, a lot of people were like, I'm dumping all my dash, this is crazy. <laughs> it was definitely a high-pressure time. And... Also, Ryan picked this time to what a lot of people felt was overshadow the momentous announcement by talking about tokenomics. And um, I don't know how I feel about that in, in retrospect as far as the timing of it. I did, it. When you have something you have to address, you address it when you have an audience, right? Sometimes that can't, can't be, you know. And, and maybe it's better to overshadow that it's not a full mainnet release or a the full testnet release we're expecting next quarter. Um, maybe, who knows? But that's that's neither here nor there. The point is he brought up this whole tokenomics thing where he just he noted that the circulating supply of Dash, the change to the rate of circulating supply of Dash caused some weird unintentional price problems. And of course that Dash's mining and masternode combo, just the way it shakes out, the incentives cause a giant spike in the price where Tash was ranked number three for a little while and then got up to about $1,600 per coin in late 2017 and then just took a monumental 
crash and that it would be better if that would tight would be tighter in the range and anyway there's a lot of stuff on that i want to rehash the whole thing but in proposing a change which was instead of the 50 50 minor master note split it would turn to a 60 40 over a long period of time to sort of even out the changes in circulating supply but as part of that it's like hey now that we're talking about that what if we had a treasury that was more flexible and this is <laughs> there's a lot of before people start um freaking out in the comments and stuff because there's some people who are very passionate about this issue and are involved in their own kind of initiatives and stuff mm-hmm. um basically the idea was basically here's how things work right scarcity applies and the more scarce an asset is the better and so right. say you have a 10 percent treasury 10 percent of the coin supply and if you don't spend it which is right now the way it is if you don't spend any portion of that that doesn't get created which means your dash is more scarce if you don't spend it if you don't create it for the treasury and therefore more valuable and of course you want to spend stuff that'll make the value increase more than it will decrease by making it less scarce by putting out more coins exactly but you don't see this right and this is where i would call it almost like ux and product rather than economics because economics aren't aren't up for debate on that but it's just people's perception basically ryan's idea was to um, and I don't know if this this part has been put up to a vote yet or whatever, but Ryan's part, uh, his insight onto this would be the dash gets created regardless of whether it gets spent on the treasury or not, but whatever isn't spent on the treasury goes to the miners and the master nodes. So you actually see what you saved by not spending on things. And before this, the, the treasury's behavior from my, you know, just from my you know casual observation has kind of already started to capture this to grasp this concept where yes you see the the price is not very high compared to where it has been before but people are still leaving money on the table and right. in the past they were just spending everything and even at even when dash had a 10 million dollar monthly treasury at one point 10 million they only spent 40 percent and they were trying, that's just, there wasn't enough to fund. So with this whole flexible treasury idea, there'll be I think there's going to be a lot more people realizing they're saving money by not spending frivolously. And so all that to go down to the 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 idea in that Ryan also proposed to increase the cap from a ten percent of a coin emission to a possible twenty percent, right. meaning not meaning that people would tend to spend double on the treasury and instead of infrastructure, but that people would tend to spend less because of this new, uh, because of being aware of how much money it's costing them to fund proposals, but just that there's that flexibility in case you need to put in a big ask. So now let's just say the 10% is 20%. Um, sure. In the past, Dash Core Group has said, has done a personal pledge, right? A to keep to 10% of the 10 or 60% maximum of the 10%. Now, if it's a 20%, is it going to be now that 60% is twice as much, twice as big of a chunk of the pie? Or is that now going to go to 30% of the 20%? All right. So you're saying, you know, now that the proposal system or what you're referring to as the treasury increases from 10 to 20%, kind of will we remain at the 60% will we double to the 60% limit or 
are we going to stay in absolute terms in terms of how much DAS we receive at the same level? Yeah. Yeah. So the intent of the proposal is not a land grab for Dash Corp. Right. Mm -hmm. So we don't intend and we don't want our run rate to increase with available treasury. Mm -hmm. So what that would mean is that we would keep our run rate budget the same in absolute terms, meaning it would be reduced um, from, you know, 60 percent mm -hmm. to 30 percent. Right. Yeah. Um, so what this proposal would really do is it, it really gives the masternodes more flexibility and mm -hmm. freedom in figuring out how they want to do funding right mm -hmm. um personally i think what could happen now is you know as you mentioned dash core group is kind of you know the, the one and the big entity in the ecosystem mm -hmm. where people you know if they're looking to get hired or something like that it would be great if you know there were other organizations that sprang forth right that could add value that convince the masternodes that listen it makes sense to fund us instead of not creating these coins or you know in the case of um, the new rules, having those funds going back out to miners or master nodes. It actually will increase the ROI um, for your Dash holdings if you were to um, fund our team, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Dash Core Group 2 or Dash Core Group 3 could get spun out, and that I would find that to be really exciting. So, you know, I think the other thing that this would do would be it would kind of set a floor um, for Dash Core Group funding, right? So... If there's like a sustained drop to let's say forty dollars or thirty-five dollars mm -hmm. um, in the price of Dash, I think at that point Dash Core Group would explore putting forth a supplemental proposal mm -hmm. over that thirty percent and leave the choice up to the masternodes. Um, should we kind of exceed that thirty percent self-imposed limit, and you'll provide us funding on a temporary basis until the price goes up, or do you kind of want us to? Um, you know, make some tough staffing decisions and some tough decisions about our spend, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it does, I wouldn't say we would never exceed that 30%, but the intent is for it to only be exceeded in, you know, extraordinary circumstances. Um, and even in those circumstances, it would be a separate proposal that would be asking the masternodes whether or not they would approve of something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what it gives is basically flexibility, um, to the master notes to to figure out how it is that they want to spend the funds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because right now masters already have the flexibility to not spend funds on things, yes. whatever. But then there's the upper limit of oh, it doesn't fit in this month. Oh, it's too sad. Come back next month, and right. then it's just yeah, it becomes a little murky. And um, also for those who don't remember, um, probably possibly before your time, I can't remember, but there was a time when. Dash Core Group had a pledged limitation of what is I think it was eighty percent of the treasury. It was like in single right. digit dash days, like back when yeah. it's like you're trying to like keep time. yeah keep like a few developers on staff. It's very small team, right? Not like it's a huge team today, but it was you know very small sort of amateur team, if you will. And it was like the okay, well we'll, we'll settle for eighty percent. So is and obviously extenuating circumstances. Like for example, if Dash had a sustained thirty dollar price point for a while, um, I think that most master nodes, this is just a guess, would be okay with a seventy to eighty percent take rate just to keep all the development going forward. And they might demand that, for example, just be like, look, the treasury was created to fund development primarily. 
and it has to do at least that. And if it can't, then like we're we're all screwed anyway. So that's just my personal guess of how it would shake out. Now, uh, with the twenty percent, um, because of that, is there any thought to a change in flexibility because of the new flexibility? Is there a thought uh, to change the percentage or amount of reserves that Dash Quarter Group has? And the kind of the the thought process that you have you want to have reserves in case uh something goes wrong in case you know you have a you don't have enough money one month or whatever in case the price goes down um right. but if you could there's a much more flexible range of asking for proposals or supplemental funding thing does that short term or even long term you know like say that you know dashed core group is typically taking eight percent of the treasury you know at some point because of the price right. and the double whatever eight percent then would there be any thought of like we don't need as much reserves or is the reserves thing kind of a best practices like it is just kind of a good idea regardless of how much flexibility you have to go back to the treasury and say hey guess what we need to double our ask but good news there's a lot of room in my opinion, having reserve is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, when the price goes down, it affects you disproportionately, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever dash you are holding on to is worth less now. Um, your expenses, most of our expenses um, are, you know, USD dollar or USD denominated, right? So our liabilities are in US dollars. Um, now we can, re the price goes down, we can request less funds um, from the network in U.S. dollar terms. Um, and we wouldn't want to suddenly ratchet up the percentage um, that we're asking from the network immediately when there are all these other projects most likely that are also getting hurt in the ecosystem that are also asking for more money, right? So it's exactly when the price falls, when reserves become important, and when you want to slowly ratchet up your ask as opposed to, um, you know, asking for 70 to 80 percent. And potentially even displacing a lot of important other projects in the ecosystem, right? So for me, it would harm um, the Dash network um, if we were to get rid of the reserves and the price were to go down because now we're displacing other projects by, um, you know, asking for a disproportionate amount of money. Um, by having those reserves, we can use them to burn through them first before we have to ask for a lot more funding, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, I'm trying to think. There's there's a a question I kind of have, but it's a little, you know, it's definitely not in the home, not like a home, something one would have done homework for. Okay. Um, so, generally speaking, in terms of economics, I understand and appreciate that the free market system is probably the most efficient in the world, where people have real consequences for bad decisions and they have real uh, benefits for good decisions. And the treasury is always going to be sort of outside of the free, purely free market zone in that you just kind of, you get people to uh, like what you're doing and vote for it. And, you know, whether it pans out or not, it is a little, it's a little more vague. Although with this exact attachment where you actually see how much you, your prices went up or down, how much your revenue went up or down based on what you fund as a masternode, where you see it more, I think we'll have that free market incentive on the negative side but on the positive side if you fund dash core group or you fund a marketing campaign or you fund whatever else it's a good idea 
the revenue does not really come in for the good decision. You don't really see it as clearly unless the, it had, like say you do a giant marketing and awareness campaign and it in increases the value of only if it increases the value of dash, you could chart that They're like, Hey, we did this marketing campaign here. Now the dash price increased 10%. Yay. We made a lot of money. That's there's a lot of stuff where that's not the case. I mean, we see like Ethereum classic still being valued very high despite just being attacked over and over and over again. There's no, right. so if someone had those developers, if someone's paying for those developers, they didn't get fired as a result because it didn't really affect the price too much. So do you have any thoughts? And of course, this could just be like, oh, I haven't thought about it. I have no thoughts of a way to sort of introduce that free market element back into the potential upside of funding things. Or is that just going to be a thing? So is that just going to be a thing where it's always, as long as the crypto space is so ignorant and speculative, it's always going to be kind of fuzzy. And then once it becomes more stable and results-based, then you'll actually see the price bumps from a good decision. Do you think that's a thing? Do you think that maybe uh, it's just going to have to be where ROI of proposals will have to be measured in fees? Where, hey, say we you know, onboard an extra million users and we can't necessarily see where the price moves on there. We can't quantify that, but we can see this much in transaction fees coming and we can determine it to be worth our while. Uh, do you have any just thoughts on that? It's a very complicated and yeah, <laughs> subject. Yeah, it but, is. Yeah. I think because we um, rely on having very low fees mm -hmm. um, on the Dash network, we probably won't be able to generate meaningful revenue from transaction fees in the near future. Um, what I can see is, you know, on Dash platform, someone creating some type of app, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty sure I discussed this idea with Ryan in the last few days. Um, yeah. And as part of that app, you know, it's some type of merchant reward or, or merchant loyalty program, right? And mm -hmm. the merchant, you know, where they pay, let's say, 2% right now to a credit card for something similar on Dash would pay 0.1%, right? Or, you know... A, a significantly lower amount in terms of a fee that would make it um, still reasonable for them to pay the fee and they still get the benefits, but it makes sense for them to switch because it's a lot lower than they're, what they're paying on a credit card, right? Mm -hmm. And then have that revenue stream flow back to um, the masternodes. I think a model like that is something that you're now talking about, right? So yeah. the, the apps you're creating on top of Dash platform, let's say, if they themselves can generate revenue and if we can figure out a way to now send that revenue back to the masternodes and increase masternode ROI, it kind of starts creating now like a virtuous circle in terms of how the economics of the network would work. Yeah. So I think there's something there. I think it's, again, like you said, it's really early in the game and there are a number of you know factors to consider as um, when you kind of start designing systems like this. But th there is definitely a kernel of an idea there that you, you can start to work with. Yeah, and I if if developers can split payments, so for example, if money goes through the the app, and there's a very small bit that comes back to the developer, that's right. easier for them to do an entrepreneurial kind of idea. But there would be a kind of thing of, well, let's design something that doesn't have that benefit for the person, but I'd rather get paid upfront by the treasury to build this kind of a system, and just then it just only benefits masternodes and miners and stuff for that. Right. Interesting. And, yeah, so you get to choose whether you want skin in the game and how much skin in the game you want, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it's like yeah. a public 
like a public good idea for ROI versus, you know, because like a lot of people just are not in a very good financial position to just do something like that. Or they don't want, they don't have the financial or, you know, marketing acumen really to just bring to be a business person. They know how to create a great product, but that's it. They don't know how to do the rest of it. And they can't, you know, they don't want to go around fine. They just want the network to be the business that Mm -hmm. takes this thing, this product to market. They just want to build the product. So it could be a thing like that. And so when you're talking about fees, that just one thing I've been trying to help push forward is like the dash Twitter idea. And especially if you have some sort of a monetization scheme in there where people are tipping each other for visibility and things like that. If you get something built in there, uh, if the if the dash fees network fees are supposed to remain around a cent USD or lower, then say you have a regular dash user like myself, I don't think I send more than a hundred payments a year. Like I'm not buying things every day. Period. I'm not right. just not just not with dash, but not period so that's like a dollar a user that's nothing for fee for the whole network to fight over but if you have like okay i register username i'm always friending people on social media through you know dash contacts and i'm updating my profile and i'm uploading images and i'm you know tweeting a million times especially after like a political figure annoys me very much on a day (laughs) and it's like all day doing that stuff right and then someone says something really fantastic that i love i'm just like i'm gonna send this guy eight cents for the dash for thank you there you go then you have bing ping 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 all those credits going back and forth all that all the the actual dash transactions going back and forth and then you all of a sudden i could easily imagine myself doing a thousand payments a year just on you know depending if i'm tipping like eight people in a day or whatever just just on this kind of platform and then, of course, all the residual fees. Then you start talking about actual income, especially if you get something at scale where you have like a, a million users. I think it'd be a lot easier to onboard a million social media users than it would be to onboard a million credit card users that are going to be swiping that card every day or something. It's just a lot easier to just, you know, sign up for a site and go, you know, shit post, right? right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so I think we're, um, we have one question, which I don't know how, um, I don't know how up your alley it is, but has Dash ever considered wrapped Dash on ETH, on Ethereum? I don't know if you know too much about the like WBTC, wrapped Bitcoin I, and stuff. Wrapped Bitcoin, I know. I, I know about it. I, I haven't explored it. I honestly have not looked into it. So I, I wouldn't feel comfortable answering that question, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had to get that in there. So yeah, no worries. Um, anything you're excited about upcoming pretty soon, other than I guess Tuesday? <laughs> um, I mean, pretty excited about reaching that three month <laughs> reserve minimum for compensation, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of where we are right now. I'm excited about um, some of the conversations we had around. Um, trying to figure out how to get dash listed in the new york market which you know we didn't discuss but you know that would be a big step as well we're we're trying to find um exchanges and partners that um would be you know looking to list us there um the nydfs recently set out um a new set of rules um around how to 
join a green list there as far as tokens and they kind of populated that green list with 10 existing tokens that are listed but it'd be great to add dash um in that important market too right so that that would be amazing and that would definitely help us um in terms of getting um relisted in japan right um, so there's a strategy we're trying to execute there um and then you know dash platform on testnet next quarter excited about that too so yeah that will be um, exciting. A, a lot of yeah a lot of really cool developments um uh I, i'm i'm optimistic about where we are I, I feel i feel really good yeah well that's great well if any of you out there watching enjoyed this um you should subscribe there's a button there it doesn't work but it's a button doing my best and then there's also linked to my coin tree where you can use donations and people do leave a message the donation so they're like great podcast i loved having glenn on or someone says thanks for the meme you sent the other day and then i kind of knew who it was <laughs> and so if you want to leave a donation for that that's how you do it and so make sure to like comment share subscribe all the good stuff and um i am going to be this might be the first episode it depends if i get it on time that i'm going to do get back to putting on the audio only version on all the old old podcast networks it's not just youtube and library and those kinds of things so that should be cool so now it's time for the thing we call the after party which is a fun happy conversation like this but much more casual and not recorded so don't worry and that happens just sometimes up to the wee hours of the morning you have to go to the dash talk discord which a lot of cool stuff happens there anyway to uh, get in on that so go to stay dashy.com i'll type it out in the live chat stay I should have like a this pre-typed, um, and then that gets you into the, dis the Dash Talk Discord, and then you just start asking around for the after party, like a speakeasy, and someone will plug you in. So, Glenn, it's been a fantastic pleasure chatting with you. This is a lot of really fascinating stuff, and ah, I hope you enjoyed your time here. Yeah, I did. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. All right. And hopefully, see great. you again soon. Absolutely. And bye, everyone. <laughs>